This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 13. You can turn there in your Bibles and find it on page 948 in the Bibles in your rows, or it's also printed in your bulletin. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you this morning. You know, I've, uh, if you know me for a while, you might know this to be the case that I'm a bit of a, an Anglophile. That is, I'm, I'm really sort of enamored with British culture, the towns, the history, the accent, the royalty, the literature. And I especially like the colorful nicknames that are given to uh, the English monarchs, for example, Edward the Confessor, or William the Conqueror, Richard the Lionhearted, Alfred the Great. I think in America, only professional wrestlers get nicknames uh, like that. But my favorite of all time is an English king from the 11th century, Ethelred the Unready. I think we have a picture of him there. Pastor Brian thought that looked like a Wisconsin fan with one of those cheesehead things on... But turns out that's his crown. Now, Ethelred, the unready, by pretty much everyone's estimation, was not a good king. He was especially lax in making for a strong military and thus was regularly cut off guard when facing dangers from other nations. The chief threat in those days were the Danes. And when they invaded England, Ethelred was completely ill-prepared to wage a defense of any kind. So instead, he negotiated a payoff to the Danish monarchy in order to get them to leave. And uh, this is, in fact, what happened. Now, the Danes got wise to this, and so whenever they got short of cash, they would simply invade England and wait for Ethelred to show up and pay them off. He did this seven times during his tenure. And finally, in the year 1014, they just got tired of the sort of going across, you know, the channel and going back. And they just decided, well, you know what, we're just going to stay and occupy England. And Ethelred was overthrown. And in typical fashion for him, when the final battle was being fought, he showed up two days late. <laughs> and everything was over by the time that he got there. Ethelred 
the unready. Bad king, right? Why? Because he was perpetually unready, ill-prepared. You might say he was asleep on the job. Well, in our text that we just had read to us this morning that Grace read, the Apostle Paul is issuing a call to the church, to the people of God, to be ready, right? It's a call to wakefulness, a call to attentiveness, a call to readiness. He says when you recognize the time in which you live, it will make a difference in how you live. And we've been looking at this section of the book of Romans, Romans 12 to 16, over the last couple of months as a manual for understanding what it means to do life together as a community, what it means to be on mission together as the people of God in the world. And we've been saying in particular that for us, if COVID over the last year and a half has been disruptive, if it has pulled people out of the normal rhythms of community, we need to then be asking, how can we be put back together? We need to ask, how can we be remembered into the body of Christ? And perhaps the overarching theme of what we've looked at over the last uh, bit of time, as we've looked at Romans 12 in the beginning of chapter 13, is the overarching theme is love, right? If lo- it is love, Paul says, that is the glue that keeps together a group of people who have different gifts and different backgrounds, different levels of spiritual maturity. It's also love that we have to hold out to the world. What what do we have for our neighborhood? What do we have to offer uh, to uh, the people around us? It's love. Even to our enemies, Paul says, we offer love. And all of it, all of this is because we have been loved so well by God. The whole section begins in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, by Paul saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. All of this that I'm going to tell you comes because we've received the mercy of God, the love of God. And so last week we looked at the first half of Romans 13, where Paul addresses the Christian's relationship to secular authorities, to the government. And at the end of that passage, in verse 7, Paul put it this way. He said, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So he's saying, pay it all off. Don't leave off anything that you owe to anyone in any position. But then in verse 8, the beginning of our passage, he says, there's something that you're always going to owe. You're never going to completely pay off. You're always going to owe to one another. Verse 8, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And he goes on to explain this summary of the whole law, what God wants from us in regard to others is this. It can be summed up, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so then, if fulfilling the law through love is the backdrop to this passage, then Paul prescribes specifically for us three things to think about how to do that. He says in order to fulfill the law through love, we need to first, we need to know the time. Secondly, we need to consider the situation we find ourselves in. And then finally, he says, you got to dress the part. Know the time, consider the situation, and dress the part. So let's look at this that way this morning, starting with verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. If you've been around for a while, you might know that Pastor Brian and I uh, were housemates in college, and we had another 
housemate, uh, a guy named Keith, and uh, Keith was notorious for sleepwalking. I mean, this was kind of a regular thing. Uh, In the middle of the night or early in the morning, he would rise up, sometimes actually get out of bed. He would move around. He would talk sometimes, but clearly he was not awake. One of these episodes, two in the morning, he sits up in bed and begins to yell, the bugs, the bugs, they're coming out of the ceiling, the bugs. And uh, Ian, who is the nice one in the house, actually got up. Yeah, I think the rest of us just rolled over. But he got up with bug spray, trying to help Keith out, rescuing him, you know, only to get to the bed and realize he's fast asleep. On another occasion, Keith got out of bed, put on his backpack, went to the bus stop, And only after being there for about 15 minutes at the bus stop did he recognize, first, it was 5 a.m., and second, it was Saturday, so there was no school, which he thought he was going to at the time. But in the most dangerous instance of all, he had a dream that he was chasing a light for some reason. Well, he woke up to find himself on the roof of his house, reaching out for a street lamp 10 to 15 feet away, right? In this case, sleepwalking was very dangerous, Well, Paul's rationale for what he's telling us in this passage this morning, this life of love that he's calling us to, love toward other Christians, love toward the world, love toward your neighbors, even love toward your enemies. The rationale, he says, you've got to do this because you know the time. He's saying the hour has come for you to wake up, to wake from your sleep. He's saying don't sleepwalk through your Christian life, through your calling. You need to be fully awake because of the time. He says the hour has come for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. This is a story of a little boy and in his house there was a huge grandfather clock that would ring every hour on the hour and the boy got used to these chimes marking the hours of the day but at one point the clock malfunctioned and it rang 15 times. The wide-eyed boy ran to his mother exclaiming, mommy it's later now than it's ever been. And that's part of what Paul is saying here. It's later now than it's ever been. You see, the Bible teaches that we live in a time uh, where two eras are overlapping. On the one hand, we know that we live in a fallen world, a broken world where sin and death and pain are the norm. Satan is called the ruler of this age in Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul describes it here in our passage as night and as darkness. But on the other hand, a new age has broken in with Jesus. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus declares, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Paul says, even now, Colossians 1, we participate in the kingdom of his beloved son. And the writer of Hebrews happily declares that Christians have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. So you see there diagrammed uh, above us, uh, you know, imagine two overlapping circles. The one on the left characterizes that old age, the age of darkness dominated by sin and death and rebellion. The other circle on the right represents a a coming age of light where Christ's lordship is evident and peace and love and righteousness rule the day. And then we live in the middle, right, where the two are overlapping. The new age has been inaugurated by Christ coming into the world, his life, his death for our sins, his resurrection. But the new kingdom is not here in completeness yet. And so we wait for Christ's return when this era will be here in fullness. Now this is what Paul has in mind. When he says the night is far gone, the day is at hand. And if you've ever been up early in the morning before sunrise, you know what this is like. The sky has begun to light up, so it's clearly not night anymore. 
And yet the sun hasn't poked its head over the horizon. It's not quite day yet. And this is the time in which we live on the very cusp of dawn. Paul goes on to explain, he says, For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Salvation is nearer to us now. If you're a reader of the Bible, this might strike you as a little strange, because you might say, well, aren't we already saved? Salvation is nearer to us. Aren't we already saved if we believe in Jesus Christ? We have to understand that Paul talks about salvation in different ways. You might say he talks about salvation in three tenses. For example, it's totally appropriate to say we have been saved through our faith in Jesus Christ. This is how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That is, it's a done deal when you trust in Jesus Christ. You are saved and that you're rescued from the penalty of sin. You're admitted into God's family. You have been saved. Past tense. And Paul also says there's a way to understand this is a present tense, right? A present tense aspect to our salvation. First Corinthians chapter one, he says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So presently, if you are a follower of Christ, you are being saved because God is in an ongoing process of making you new. He's transforming you. He's breaking the power of sin in your life. But here in Romans 13, Paul is alluding to a future aspect of salvation. Earlier in Romans, he put it this way. He said, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? In other words, we're still waiting for the fullness of salvation to come when we will be completely done with sin, done with disease, done with discouragement and depression, done with failure and heartache, done with confusion, done with knowing only in part, and ultimately done with sinning. And this is a big deal. Paul says this salvation, this final complete salvation, is nearer now than when you first believed. And recognizing that dawn is coming, it's right around the corner, he says that should affect the way that you're living now. He urges us to consider the time. We live in the very moments before dawn. And Paul fears that many of us aren't recognizing that. We're living as if we're still part of the old age, part of the night. And so he's urging us then, don't sleep through this. Don't sleep through your calling to be God's people in the world. Don't sleepwalk unaware of the dangers. He says, wake up and anticipate the dawn. Recognize the time in which we live. So he says, redeem the time. That is, there should be an urgency to the way that we live in the world. Every moment brings us closer and closer to Jesus. The question is, how do we want to be living when you meet him? So let me talk to you for a moment here about the sin of procrastination. I've actually been meaning to talk to you about it for a while. (laughs) But um, bum, you know. A few people are just getting it now. Uh, Jonathan Edwards gave a sermon about procrastination, or what he called the sin and folly of depending on future time. And it's the depending part 
that he said was the trouble. Now he says, you know, you can read all sorts of things in the Bible and in the book of Proverbs, in particular wisdom literature about the importance of looking ahead and planning and thinking things through, right? You make provision for the future. That's part of wisdom. However, he says, we need to live each day recognizing that you might not have another day. In his text in which he bases the sermon, the teaching of the sermon is Proverbs 27, verse 1, which says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. And so the challenge, I think, to us and to live with this kind of urgency is to ask ourselves, what are you putting off? What are you putting off depending on tomorrow? What important things have you been thinking about? Ah, I'll get to it later. Maybe for you it's a, a spiritual discipline. Getting into the habit of spending daily time with the Lord or perhaps starting to pray together as a family. You're saying, I'll get to it later. Or maybe it's a relationship that needs to be restored or forgiveness that you need to seek. I'll get to it later. Perhaps a habit you need to break or an area you need to seek some help in, whether it be lust or pornography or gossip or lying or deceit. I'll get to it later. Maybe it's a friend or a family member you've been meaning to reach out to or to share your faith with, but you always seem to be saying, I'll get to it later. And look, Paul's reminding us there may not be a later. Whether Christ returns or you die and go to meet him, you are closer now than you were at the beginning of this sermon. There might not be a later. And so Paul says, wake up, don't sleepwalk. The hour has come. And so he consider, calls us to consider the time, but he also uh, calls us to consider the situation. Now, I understand there's a new Matrix movie that's coming out, or maybe is out, I haven't seen it yet, but I was thinking about the old Matrix movie, or the original Matrix movie. Uh, in the original movie, uh, Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, is uh, led down a path by another character, Morpheus, to where he finally wakes up to the reality in which he lives. He realizes eventually in the movie that uh, the time in which he was living is not at all what he thought it was. In fact, he'd been asleep the whole time. But what's interesting is, I think, is that he wakes up actually halfway through the movie. It's not as if you get to the end and that's the climax, the waking up. But no, he wakes up halfway through the movie, but that's not all he's called to do. He wakes up and then he has to get into the battle. He has to join the struggle. And one commentator summarizes Paul's sentiment in this passage and in 12 and 13 in particular, verses 12 and 13 in particular, he says to be awake is to be at war. To be awake is to be a war. We have to wake up and then we have to join the struggle because there's a clash between those two ages, right? We live in the time in between, but there's a battle between the two ages. Verse 12 says, the night is far gone the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. What does that mean? Cast off the works of darkness. Paul is saying, you belong to this new age, this new city, this new day. And therefore, we're to throw off the deeds of the old age, the old darkness. And the works of darkness, we're told in verse 13, are, and this is not exhaustive, but it's an exemplary list. He says, orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality, quarreling and jealousy. And each of those items in the list, in some way or another, are about inordinate or misplaced desire. 
The first two items have to do with inordinate desire, misplaced desire for drink or for pleasure or for parties, trying to find our happiness in a drug, a substance, a a food, a celebration. The second two items in the list have to do with inordinate desire for sex, promiscuity, adultery, pornography, seeking happiness and lust or physical intimacy outside of the place in which it's intended in marriage. The last two items in the list speak to inordinate desires for attention and preeminence and control, which he says produces quarreling. So I've got to be right. I've got to let you know that I'm right. I've got to show you that you're wrong, right? That's quarreling. Or jealousy, which is uh, a bitterness and resentment of the accolades or the attention that's given to another. All these, Paul says, are characteristics of the dark, of the old age. But he says Christ has inaugurated a new age. And if you know Jesus, then you belong to that new place, that new age to the day. And he says, therefore, we're called to live like it, to walk as in the daytime. We belong to the day, Paul says. So now let's act like people who belong to the day. And this verse always makes me think, of Sam Weich. Some of you know Sam Weich is a former Cincinnati Bengals head coach. I grew up going to the Bengals games with my dad. Despite living in Columbus, we would make the drive down to Cincinnati, and I was at uh, a famous, rather notable game, December 1989, Cincinnati Bengals against the Seattle Seahawks. And the fans, I think there were three straight holding calls that the officials had made. So the Bengals fans get unruly uh, get upset at this and they first start throwing snowballs onto the field and then eventually beer bottles onto the field they had to close or, you know clear the field of the officials clear the field of the team and then eventually Sam Weich took the public address microphone and he admonished the crowd and he said stop throwing things on the field you don't live in Cleveland you live in Cincinnati In other words, you don't belong to the darkness, you belong to the light. (laughs) Apologies, Clevelanders, for that. I know that you're on the wrong end of that illustration, but you get the point, right? This is where you live, so act like it, he's saying. Put on the armor of light. Verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. This is a call to arms, right? A recognition that there's a struggle here. You don't show up to a battle in your pajamas, but Paul says, wake up and then get the right stuff on. Put on your armor. And Ephesians chapter 6 is his longest rumination on what this looks like to put on the armor of God, but he talks about it in other places too. For example, 1 Thessalonians 5, which we have the words here just here where he's a little bit briefer. You can go ahead and put that next slide up there. Ephesians, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. There we go. For those who sleep, he says, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Faith and love and hope. These are the weapons of war. This is the armor for the battle that we're called to wage in this time between the times. Not anger and hatred, but faith and hope and love. And we have a model for this. And the very one who inaugurated this new age. Who demonstrated faith in God's plans and God's leading more than Jesus Christ. Who believed as he did all the way to the cross. Who had more hope. Then Jesus Christ, as he spoke about the coming of the kingdom when all would be made right and every tear wiped away, who had more love 
And then Jesus Christ praying for his executioners, forgiving his enemies, laying down his life for you and for me. But Jesus is not just an example for us. He's actually the way that we get this faith, hope, and love. In fact, Paul says the way to wage this war is not just to put on the armor of light, but to put on Jesus Christ himself. We're to dress the part. We have one child who is obsessed with clothing. Now, you might think, if you know our family, that the child obsessed with clothing would be the sixth grade tween girl. But no, you would be wrong. It's the first grade little boy, seven-year-old little boy, who's obsessed with clothing. Now, these are not examples of him trying on different Halloween costumes. This is uh, what we call in our house Tuesday. Uh, (laughs) Wardrobe change after wardrobe change after wardrobe change, three, four, five, sometimes six times a day. My wife is a saint for undergoing all this. He does recognize the importance of dressing the part, though, and that's what Paul is talking about in a much more significant sense at the end of this passage. Verse 14, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ." You know, even in a casual society like ours, we know clothes still make a difference, at least in certain occasions, right? Paige and I were, got a wedding invitation, this is years ago now, but I remember getting it in the mail and it said black tie optional. Now, my wife rightly pointed out that every day is actually black tie optional, technically, right? But we got the message, right? When black tie optional means this is going to be a dressy affair. So put on a shirt and tie, put on a, a sport coat, whatever the girl equivalent of, of that is. In other words, it's going to be dressy. And so as comfortable as I think, you know, a sweatshirt and, and jeans would be, I wouldn't wear that to an occasion of that kind. And if somehow I did by accident, if I didn't get the message, I would feel pretty out of place when I got there. But the Apostle Paul says this new age, this new city does have a dress code. It's not about the physical clothes that you wear to church or to anywhere else, but it's about what you're wearing, spiritually speaking. Or to be more technical, it's about who you are wearing. Where are you going to go to get the strength to battle against the world, to engage in this struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil? Paul says you need to put on Christ. Where are you going to look for peace and happiness and joy when faced with disappointment and hardship? You need to put on Christ. Where are you going to get the strength to love your neighbors, to persevere, to forgive your enemies? You need to put on Christ. Paul says, clothe yourselves with Jesus Christ. In Galatians 3, he says, there is a sense in which you have been clothed already with Christ when you become part of the people of God, when you're joined to him by faith. But Paul indicates here, there's a need for us to regularly be putting him on in order to live according to the values of this new age. One author puts it this way. He says, putting on Christ each day doesn't mean wearing Jesus as an imposition or nuisance or a burden. It means wearing him as protection. That is, trusting in Jesus, wearing him as the supplier of all your future needs. That is, hoping in him, wearing him as your supreme treasure. That is, loving him. Put on Jesus Christ means put him on as the parachute for your skydiving behind enemy lines. It means put him on as the high-impact, protective, anti-explosive suit when you disarm the bombs of the devil. 
It means put him on as the asbestos fireproof suit when you rescue sinners from the flames of hell. It means put him on as a bulletproof vest when you confront the pistols of sin and unbelief. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ means put him on as a badge that admits you to all the resources of heaven that you need to do his will. It means put him on as the best intercom system that ever was so that there can be constant communication with the one whom you love above all others, who is himself everything that you need. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ means trust him, hope in him, cherish him for all these things. And how do you do this? How do you put on Jesus? Well, it means, in the most basic sense, spending regular time with Jesus Christ, getting to know him, reading about him in God's word, drawing close to him in prayer. And of course, this means doing this together when we come to worship God's people on the Lord's day, but it also means daily engaging with Jesus as you go to him in God's word and prayer. You know, one of the first things you do each morning, I would bet, is to put on your clothes for the day. And when you do that, those clothes go with you wherever you go. They do whatever you do. They cover you. They make you presentable to others. That's the purpose of clothes. In the same way, the Apostle Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ when you get up in the morning. Make him a part of your life that day. Intend that he go with you everywhere that you go and that he act through you in everything that you do. I got to close here. But, you know, just a reminder the burden of this passage is for us to wake up, right? To know the time that we live at the conflict of the overlap of these two ages. This is the break of dawn. And there was one person in church history for whom this was a very important passage. He was a fourth century North African man by the name of Augustine. He lived most of his life up to that point of uh, what he would call as classified by that old age, deeds of darkness. He said he was seeking pleasure and money and comfort and sex. And he moved to Milan and he began to get to know this guy named Ambrose. Ambrose was a lecturer in philosophy. He was also a pastor and a theologian. And at first, Augustine was just interested in Ambrose because he was a great speaker. Augustine was studying oratory. But eventually, the substance of his message began to get to him, began to work on his heart. But he still wasn't quite sure. And then he, he, he one day, while struggling uh, with this between-the-ages kind of life, he began to sit down and to think. And I'll just read to you as we close what he said. He said, I felt that I was still captive in my sins. And in my misery, I kept crying out, How long shall I go on saying, Tomorrow, tomorrow? Why not today? I was asking myself these questions, weeping all the while with the most bitter sorrow in my heart, when all at once I heard the sing-song voice of a child in a nearby house. Whether it was the voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say, but again and again it repeated the refrain, tola lege, tola lege, which is Latin for take it and read, take it and read. As I looked up, thinking hard whether there was any kind of game in which children used to chant words like these, but I couldn't remember ever hearing them before. I stemmed my flood of tears. I stood up, telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open my book of Scripture and read the very first passage on which my eyes should fall. And where did he turn? But Romans chapter 13. Let us walk properly As in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but 
put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Augustine said, I had no wish to read anymore and no need to do so. For in an instant, as I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. Listen, I don't know what God is saying to each of you this morning, but I do know that you're not here by accident. Just like with Augustine, you might be saying, how long shall I go on saying tomorrow Tomorrow, but Paul would say to us, why not now? If there is anything God is calling you to, don't say tomorrow, tomorrow. Why not now? Let's pray. We're going to continue to worship and come to the table this morning. Lord God, would you help us indeed to to come awake, to stay awake to the realities of the time in which we live, this time between the ages. The night is gone, the day is at hand. And so would you help us to live according to the new realities of the kingdom of God? Would you help us to be an outpost of this new city, the new Jerusalem, that one day will come in all fullness when Jesus Christ returns? And God, if any of us are putting things off, would you help us to move toward action? Would you help us to not just be hearers of your word, but faithful doers of your word? And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.